So this morning, I thought I would present, present a theological overview from the book of Judges. We finished it, as you know, last week. And I just thought, well, the book of Judges ends so abruptly. You know, in, in verse 21, 25, we, we come to the end, and, it, and it, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, says the author of Judges. And in my edition, it's the very bottom of the right-hand page. So you, you read that verse, and perhaps you turn over, like, okay, what's happening next? Wait a minute, it's Ruth. Wait. It's like the author of Judges does a theological mic drop and walks off the stage and, and we're kind of left like, wait, wait, what, 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 what are we supposed to do now? What, what's, what's this all about? And it can be confusing, especially if we look at the Bible as a collection of verses that we just memorize and we don't connect the story, or we think of it as, as a group of Sunday school tales that were told when we're children. We've heard, we were told of Samson, we're told of Gideon, we're told of Noah when we're children. And then as we become adults, you know, we kind of leave those behind and we, we move on in, into the adult things like the, the, the wonderful theological treatises of Paul in the New Testament. But there are very important theological messages to be found in the Old Testament. And, and we need to pay attention to these. So the title of this morning's sermon, in case you're taking notes, is Being God's People in an Ungodly World. Being God's People in an Ungodly World. This is an overview on Judges. It's part one. And I'll do a second part next week, Lord, Lord willing. So modern Christianity commonly interprets the Hebrew scriptures primarily from a New Testament perspective. And this is, of course, normal. And, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with it uh, per se, as the New Testament, as we all know, is particular to the Christian faith. It was written by Christians to Christians, to us, to the early church, and everyone in between. But we, almost, we must also read and study the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And unfortunately, this is not the case in many churches and amongst many Christians. The Old Testament is forgotten. The Old Testament is difficult. The Old Testament um, doesn't make things, let's say, as clear as, as some of the New Testament teachings do. And this is a serious error. Uh, on the part of Christians who, who think this. Just the mere fact that the Old Testament consists of the larger portion of our Bible, you know, close to 60% just by the number of books, which isn't really a good way to count it, but even if you count it by, by verses or word or whatever, it's an incredibly large part of the Bible, and we, we should not um, ignore it, especially when we think of how the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we read the Old Testament to understand what's coming in the New Testament. When we read the New Testament, if we don't understand what happened in the, in the Old Testament, it's not going to be as clear as God has made it for us. So we must be a people of the whole book, 
Old Testament as well as new. So this, this mindset that many have leads to judges being judged primarily on what the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews has to say. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 34, and of course Hebrews chapter 11 is that famous chapter that we call the Hall of Faith. In it are the heroes of our Christian faith, and truly they are heroes. And what the author of Hebrews says here, and this is him, I quote, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So the author of Hebrews, he mentions four of the six major judges that we looked at as we, as we had this exegetical journey of a, of a year's length going through judges. Uh, it's interesting the ones he chooses. The ones he chooses are the ones that he was inspired to choose based on how he describes what they did as, as, as the faith that they exemplified. He doesn't mention, oddly, Othniel, the very first major judge in the book, who is the model judge. He is like next to as perfect as a human being could be. He doesn't do anything wrong. And then, as you recall, it kind of, we have a progressive decline after this first model judge. And he doesn't mention Ehud, who, who assassinated the, the Moabite king, Eglon. Maybe that just was too difficult to fit in. Um, but, but all kidding aside, Ehud does not do any of these things that the author of Hebrews uses as descriptions of the faith the specific faith acts he is pointing out. So with this, Hebrews 11, 32, 34 is their primary frame of reference. Many Christians understand judges as a collection of stirring tales of the exploits of completely virtuous heroes, mighty men of God, larger-than-life personalities, if you will, who are held up as models of our faith after whom Christians should pattern their lives. As we've seen, the accounts of the major judges go much deeper th than that. They go much deeper than the stories that we may have heard about them in children's Sunday school. And we find that rarely are these men exemplary in their faith in all aspects. Of course, the author of Hebrews is completely correct. All believers are called to a life of faith, as were each of the judges. And that without faith, we can accomplish nothing for God. And the judges are examples of this. They were called to accomplish tasks for God, but they did it in an imperfect way. So we should be able to identify with that. And understanding this in the judges as our examples, that, that, that they, have, they, are, they are flawed, helps us strip the hypocrisy from ourselves. 
that we do not pretend to be able to reach the level of perfection. These men, these judges anointed by the Lord God, did not attain human perfection. Neither can we. So this rosy view of the major judges is far more positive, let's say, and often unrealistic than I think what the author of Judges actually intends. He's not intending to give us, you know, tales of these men that are just legendary and beyond our, our ability to be like. That's not, that's not what he's trying to do. But there's tension here, and we must realize this. We must come to grips with this. And this, lay, this tension lays in the fact that the view of both judges and the book of Hebrews are accurate. Both these views are accurate. It's not like this one's got it right and this one's got it wrong. We have to reconcile these views, right? God's scripture is inerrant. His word is without error. It does not fail. If we see something that we think is a discrepancy, well, we're, our understanding needs to be um, worked on. We need maybe to dig a little bit deeper into the text. Our problem is when we read this verse from Hebrews, we read beyond what the author of Hebrews is telling us. We're filling in some blanks, so to speak, that aren't really there, but we're just imposing these ideas on the text. We have to be very careful of that when we're handling the word of God. Not to impose ideas on what God is telling us. And on more than one occasion, as we examined the book of Judges over this past year, now, I received good-natured comments about my, my sermon, and, and you know, I took them in the humorous vein they were meant. I enjoyed it. I got a chuckle out of it, along with you know, um, the brothers or sisters that mentioned it to me. But it was like, oh, wow, you've really deflated you know, my, my view of, the, of the, the, the heroes and judges like Samson or Gideon. You, know, you kind of handled them roughly there, and well, perhaps I did. But I think that's the way the, the author of, of Judges is presenting them. He wants us to see these things. If we only talk about these figures in children's Sunday school version, and we keep this perspective, um, and then move on later as adults, and like, well, I learned that in Sunday school. I don't need to revisit it. We shouldn't be surprised if our, if our bubbles get burst or if we have trouble reconciling the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what we teach our children in, in the children's ministry is well and good. What's, what's helpful and needful for a child, of course, is different than what is helpful and needed for us who are adults. And our, our teaching in church should be age-appropriate. And children need to learn about the heroes in the Bible. I'm not saying otherwise. But when we're adults, then we get the, more, the fuller version, let's say. So the central theme of the book of Judges, as I've tried to emphasize this past year, is the canonization of Israel. Israel is becoming like the Canaanites, the people they were to drive out of the promised land. 
If you miss this, if you miss this theme, you miss really the reason for the book. You miss the main theological message if if you're not seeing this. And this is the key to the book's relevance to us, to the modern Western Christian. And it's actually been the key throughout church history. So it's not like, well, it means one thing to us now, and it meant something different at the time of the Reformation, meant something different at the time of the Apostolic Fathers, so on and so forth. No, the message remains the same. We may have to contextualize it a little bit differently. We may have to put it in a frame of reference that makes sense in our world, but the message always remains the same. So we, and really all Christians through the church ages, at times, like the Israelites in the time of the judges, may have largely forgotten the covenant Lord and have come to take for granted his gracious redemptive work on our behalf. And like the ancient Israelites, and I think this really resonates for us now, we too are being squeezed into the mold of our pagan world around us. And the evidences that we see in the church today of the canonization of, and when I say church, I'm talking the church universal. I'm not talking about our particular church here, Sovereign Grace. Please understand that. But these evidence that we see of the canonization in the church, they're like, they're bell ringers um, from the time of the judges. As, as, as I go down this list, think about how, yeah, we saw that in judges. Yes, exactly right. You know, one of the judges did that. That's how the Israelites were at that time. And man, it's just so much like what we're experiencing. But there's this preoccupation with material prosperity, right? And which, which turns... Christianity into like a fertility religion. Fertility religions, that's the, the Baals and the Ashtaroth that the, that the Israelites turn to to serve. Much the same as we're seeing. We're seeing syncretic and aberrant forms of worship. Where churches are bringing in non-Christian practices, things that are not commanded by God for his worship. There's a refusal to obey the Lord's call of separation from the world. There's divisiveness and competition within the church. There are moral compromises, making those inside the church often indistinguishable from those who are outside of the church. There's a desire for my kingdom come rather than Thy kingdom come. We default to worldly resources and strategies as solutions to the spiritual battles that we are fighting and to the tasks that the Lord would have us do. And there are those who stand up and defend perpetrators of evil instead of calling for justice. And as we've seen, as I said, each of these were problems with Israel of the judges, and these problems remain in Christianity today. Why is that? Because sin remains, and sin will remain until the Lord returns. And we must grapple with these issues, and we can, 
we can learn from what has gone before us and not think, well, that was, you know, that was how many thousands of years ago? It certainly doesn't apply today. But we put it in this sort of context, we can see it does apply today, doesn't it? Like the Israelites in the time of the judges, we are God's people living in an ungodly world. Neither the Israelites nor we became people of God through our own merit, of course. It's not that we did something special. The Israelites didn't do something special. They were chosen by God just as we are chosen by God. God's people are determined by his sovereign choice and his sovereign choice alone. That we are counted among God's people, it was not earned by us, nor was it earned by Israel. It's solely by divine election. Neither is this predicament that we are in or that Israel was in being in an ungodly world. Neither is that our doing. Although each of us contribute individually to the sin of the world by our own sins, we are not responsible for the world as a whole in the sense that we must realize, and my point in this is is this, that I don't want you to miss, is that we are not going to make the world a place of sinless perfection. That is not going to happen. Perfection can only be brought about by a perfect being, which the only perfect being is our triune God. And it is his doing, their doing, the Trinity, that will bring about the defeat of sin. But we have, we have a task to do. We're given a task by our Lord. And we have a path of righteousness that he's given us. And we are to model his behavior as we go through the world. The circumstance of Israel in the book of Judges is that of, like I said, people of God dwelling in the land of the ungodly. And we certainly, we can imagine that, right? I mean, can you imagine what it must be like dwelling in the land of the ungodly? Well, yes, of course, you just walk out that door. We're in the land of the ungodly. It's always been like that. To a greater or lesser extent, all Christians have experienced this. English Puritan pastor Stephen Carnock, anybody who was here at 10, 10 a.m. remember that name? Pastor Mike was talking about it. Well, anyway, he, he was a, a, an English nonconformist pastor in, in the middle of the 1600s in England. And we think back to that time, we think about the Puritans in England, Puritan England, you know, what a wonderful place it must have been and to, to dwell at that time? Well, he writes in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, he writes about the alarming growth of atheism, atheism and sinfulness that he sees in England and how there's hardly a godly man to be found. So the, like the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And when we read these, these great Christian men like Carnot from centuries and centuries ago, and we read this, just like reading, you know, read the book of Acts or, or any part of the Bible, really, 
that, that talks about people living together in society, and we think, that could be today. That's just like today. It's, it's no different. And I wonder if Brother Carnock, if he was able to see what the world's like today, <laughs> if he were like, you know what, it wasn't so bad <laughs> in my time. Or he could say, it's exactly the same. You guys just got more whiz-bang doodads than we had. But, it's a, but people are the same. Man is sinful and, and, and evil at his nature. So how do we answer this question? How should the people of God live in an ungodly world? Well, here's my first point, point number one. God's people should not reflect their environment. God's people should not reflect their environment. I know many times my points are like, they're like no-brainers. Well, of course, Pastor Ken. But sometimes we need to state the obvious, don't we? Because we get caught up in things. And we see what's happening around us. We see how people around us are living. And it becomes, it's like the old adage of the fish in water, right? We're, we're swimming in an ungodly world. So ungodliness really is natural to us until we make use of the means of grace God has given us. We gather with the saints on the Lord's Day and whenever we can. We, we're in God's word, hopefully daily. We're praying we're in prayer. We're meditating on God's word. Then we realize this water that we're swimming in stinks. Something wrong here. You know, we've got to swim in it, but, you know, it, it needs to be purified a little bit. So those elect that I've been talking about, those called by God, chosen by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, before the ages began, as, as Paul wrote to his fellow pastors, Timothy and Titus, and consider by these very words of reference that, that, that are used for us and for, and for the Israelites, the people of God, these very words of reference make us different from the world at large. We're being pointed, a, a distinction is being pointed out to us. There's a separation, like the old adages, you know, there's, there's two types of people in the world. Well, there are, according to Scripture, there's two types of people in the world. This idea, this fact is explained very early in the Bible's story. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And after the sin of rebellion in the garden, the Lord curses the serpent. He declares this to the serpent. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God here sets a distinction between two things. That distinction is described in the text as enmity. What, is, what does that mean? That's a, that's a word we don't use much. It means hatred. It means a hostile mind, a hostile mindset. Animosity between two parties or even between two classes of beings, which is important considering the text here. The prophet Ezekiel later in, in, his, in his book refers to enmity as never-ending and perpetual rancor. There's another really good word, rancor, of Philistia and Edom against Israel. 
as, as their enemy. That, that he prophesied, in his prophecy, these two nations, these two groups of people will perpetually be at war against God's people. So there's two things that are distinguished in this passage. Number one, the serpent's offspring or seed, as, as the Hebrew says, and the woman's offspring or seed. In other words, the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent. Now, many of you are already familiar with interpretations of this passage. And I, 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 it's not that I'm thinking that I need to be so, so very, very basic. But what I want to show you in, in what, I, what I'm talking to you about this morning is how this very important passage should be viewed as a building block verse of our faith and our salvation. And it finds interpretive support throughout Scripture, throughout all of God's story. It's not just an Old Testament concept or a New Testament idea. All of God's word pulls this together. And it's important, and one of the things I, I feel called to do to, to show God's people how God's word ties together, how it's one story, how it makes sense, how it's not just a bunch of disjointed ideas thrown together. It's not um, a, 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 the book of I Ching, like the Chinese have, where it's just all these pithy proverbs that, that don't make sense. They don't connect. But if you, if you study them and memorize them, then you'll become a wise uh, person. Um, it, it's a story. God's given us a book, and he's telling us a story. And we need to, we need to know this story. So who or what is the seed of the woman? Number one. The seed, Hebrew, words, Hebrew word zera, as I said, offspring or descendant, is the one who will bruise, literally in Hebrew that means grip hard, but it could also mean break, snap, crush the serpent's head. This is a fatal wound, right? Any of these things done to a head is going to kill the, per the person or being it it's done to. While the serpent will grip hard, the same thing, the heel of the woman's seed to heal so like a non-fatal wound right i mean you're, you shouldn't you probably aren't going to die by having your heel wounded but the interesting thing is this hebrew word for heel can also mean the hind part or rear guard if you think about the the, the picture of a person walking and they're walking and the heel is the hindmost part as you're moving forward isn't it so also, those who lag behind the body are subject to wounding by being gripped hard by Satan. Now what are we? We are the body of Christ. If we are together as a body, we are functioning as God intended us to function. When we're lagging behind, it's like, you know, I really don't, I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I see the Lord's creation in the great outdoors. Just me and God, and did I remember my Bible in the backpack? No, I didn't, but that's okay. Me and God, will commune. 
that person who does that routinely, now I'm not talking when you go on vacation or you're enjoying yourselves doing recreation. I'm not talking about that, brothers or sisters. I'm talking about the person who routinely does such a thing, who routinely avoids the gathering of the saints and missing out on the means of grace is lagging behind. They are the heel of the body. And what will Satan do? Satan will grab hold of them and grip them hard. We are being warned here of this. But it also ties in with something else, right? This also ties in with, with what the Lord Jesus went through. We know he was wounded on our behalf and executed. He died and came to life. He was resurrected. So we have these two ideas. And that's the marvelous thing about God's word is there's not just a surface level meaning to these things. We can go deeper and we can find Meanings that really tie it all together. And the description of the seed, getting back to the, the, what I would say is the, the surface meaning, is not general, but, but specific. There is one specific seed in view in, in this verse, even though you know, the laggards of the body are also, I think, intended here. This prophecy in Genesis continues in the Old Testament. It's not just dropped by, by what Moses writes. The latter prophets that are, that are, that are in the scroll called the Book of the Twelve by, by, the, by the ancient Jews, which was the last part of the, um, one of the last parts of the, the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures. So near the very end of, of the, 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 the Jewish Scriptures... It's revealed to the prophet Habakkuk that the one who crushes heads is the Lord himself. But yet, how the Lord is also the seed of a woman remains a mystery at this time. And this is what Habakkuk writes in chapter 3, verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of of the wicked. House of the wicked, that's a, that's a dynasty. That's not just one. That means there's, there's, a, there's like a line of, of wicked, uh, like the house of Tudor, a line of kings, but a house of, of wickedness, wicked rulers and people in general. Going on, Habakkuk says, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Now, this just doesn't mean removing the clothing. This is the idea of a horrible wound, laying bare, like, to the bone, cut to the bone, from thigh to neck. That's a, that's a fatal wound. That is certainly being gripped hard. That is being crushed. Paul helps us see this idea of the seed as primarily one and only one person also. In Galatians 3.16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so we have that idea. But then he expands upon that to include us. He's talking about one seed, right? That's, this, this is Christ, this one offspring. But then how do we make it apply to us? Well, he explains in the next chapter, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, fullness of time, 
the, an exact moment chosen in time, decided before the beginning of time by our triune God. The fullness of time has come. God knows the exact millisecond that stuff's going to happen. But the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Here's the answer that Habakkuk cannot give. How does this seed, the anointed Lord, become seed of a woman? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as I said before, this idea of sons, that doesn't mean he's only talking about guys. He's only talking about males. It's the inheritance it, it culturally was to the, the male son, right? The oldest male son. So, so by, when he says sons, when we read sons in the New Testament in this sort of context, it's talking about those who are made heirs to God's kingdom, which is all Greek and Jew, male and female. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul, of course, is speaking of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And how since our identity as Christ's elect is now in Christ, making us sons, adopted into God's family, in essence, we're like brothers to Christ now. Although that's that's kind of that sounds kind of weird because He's our Lord, but but in this sense, you know, He's God the Son. We are sons, so we share this this family connection now. So then, that means we're likewise heirs of all divine inheritance, all the good things that God is giving come to us. This lineage that's being talked about here, of course, is spiritual in nature, and now. Through Christ and the Holy Spirit, the blessings of inheritance are no longer confined to a specific ethnic group, the, the Israelites, as, as they were once upon a time before Christ. And it's not confined, confined to a specific geographical place anymore either, which is Canaan, the, the promised land. Now it's the whole earth, all four corners of the earth. Peter, when he was speaking to the crowd at Solomon's Portico, on the day of Pentecost, it's recorded in Acts chapter 3, verse 25. He tells the crowd, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers. Saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So our new status as adopted sons makes us usable by God for a new purpose here. We are now also those who will crush the head of the serpent. This is by special and specific authority given to us by the Lord Jesus. And we see this in, in Luke chapter 10. Verse 1 tells us what's going on and then specifically 17 through 19 is what, is what I want you to look at, what I want you to understand. So what's going on here in verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Your, your version may say 70. There's a difference in the manuscripts, but it, it makes no difference whatsoever. Interestingly, the 70 or the 72 match up with Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations. 
if your, manus- if your Bible says 70, then there's 70 nations in chapter 10 of Genesis. If your Bible says 72, you're going to find 72 nations, just depending on how some of the offspring of Noah are divided. What the point is, is that Christ is reaching out to all of these nations, the nations that have been de- had departed from the worship of the true God and were given over to the pagan uh, gods and idols. So, he sends 72 others, sends, sends them out to go on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was to go. Then they come back to him in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Our Lord is connecting this idea of serpents and scorpions to Satan and to the powers of the enemy. So he's, he's not just giving these men protection from the hostile lower creatures that inhabit the region they live in. No, it's, they have authority over evil spiritual beings. This applies to us. Paul reveals this that we have this startling new authority. He tells the Christians in Rome, in, in Romans verse 16, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 20, Romans 16, 20. He tells them the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is using, will use the church to accomplish this deed. As the Lord said in Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So his reference to the serpents and scorpions is in response to their excited announcement, right? What was their excited announcement? That even the demons submit to them. They are able to cast out demons, now, there was a long history of exorcism in ancient Israel, but interestingly, there's no examples of successful exorcism in ancient Israel. There were charlatans that would go around and charge money, and they would do magical spells and, you know, maybe, you know, uh, say magic words or, or things of that nature to try and cast demons out of a person. But it wasn't until... God the Son came in person that this was seen as being accomplished and now his disciples are able to do it. And this connection that the Lord has made Satan, serpents, power of the enemy, evil, applies to all wicked beings, both spiritual and mortal. Putting them all together. And we see this in Revelation. The Apostle John is told exactly who the serpent in the garden is, in case there's any doubt. 
Revelation 12, 9, the great serpent was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So he's cast out of heaven, but he's down here on earth. So he doesn't have authority anymore to appear before the court of God. He doesn't have authority to accuse, as we see the accuser in the book of Job going before the heavenly court, before the assembly of God, and saying, consider Job. But Satan is allowed a certain amount of activity on the earth, which humanity experiences. So the human race is clearly divided into two types. We're seeing this. The children of God, which is the seed of the women, and the children of the devil, the seed of the serpent. And John, um, in case it's not clear, in his first letter to the church, of 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, he identifies both of these for us. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he that is Jesus Christ, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, makes a practice of sinning. It's not, John's not saying no one who ever sins is, is born of God. No, it's, if, 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 if you find yourself in a practice of sin, that, that, that is an issue, a, a serious issue. You know, just one sin is an issue too, right? We must repent of all of our sins. Going on. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You, you probably experience that now. If you stumble and you sin, you, you realize it. You, it's wrong, right? It's not an idea of I, can, I got away with it. It's like, no, man, I should not have done that. Me, usually it's something I've said. It's like, I should not have said that. That was, that was sinful for me to say that, and I must repent of it. By this, John is saying, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. See, these two distinct classes. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Point number two that I would like to make. The wicked are outraged by righteousness. The wicked are outraged by righteousness. I guess that's another no-brainer from Pastor Ken. The first sins we find recorded in the Bible tell us a lot about the nature of sin. We, we get information from them. The first sin in the garden reveals the wicked impulse to steal God's sovereignty and take it for ourselves, that we want to be on God's throne. We want to be as God. The second sin we come to right after the chapter, right after the fall, chapter 4, right, is a murder. The sin of Cain, the second sin. Cain, the inheritor of the original sin of his parents, because at the time of the fall there was no babies running around in the garden. His sin is murder motivated by the evildoer's hatred of righteousness. 
And John, again, explains this in his first epistle to his first letter to the church, 1 John 3, 12 through 15. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So increasing acts of wickedness is the way of the serpent and his seed. We see it grow very quickly, don't we, in Genesis. From jealousy of God to murdering of a brother. This, this growth, this increase in wickedness is an attempt to stop the advance of righteousness. Certainly Satan makes this clear in his every action. This may not always be the case with his seed. Theirs is frequently an inarticulable hatred. Just, they just get enraged by anything that is good. Really, I mean, we see this all around us today in our culture. And again, I don't think it's anything different than what has occurred at other times and other places throughout human history. It's just that we have this instant access to worldwide news that, that we're reading that just weighs us down and can, can really can get us in a bad state of mind. It's important to consider how anything that society traditionally maybe not now, but traditionally, considers virtuous and praiseworthy, can be connected to a Christ-like behavior or attitude. Virtue used to be important in society. It no longer is. When the Lord Jesus foretold the horrors that were to come upon those who proclaimed themselves to be his enemies, that is, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the hypocrites, he said, and Matthew records this in Matthew 23, 33 through 36. And the way the Lord speaks here is very telling in connection with what we're discussing this morning. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, the, the, therefore there is very interesting. Why is the Lord saying therefore? Because this is what I'm going to do, he's saying. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. This is a declaration this is a declaration of deity right here. How can an itinerant preacher, unless he is God the Son, send prophets from the time of Israel's founding up till now, unless he himself is God? There's another thing that just set the Pharisees and the scribes off. You know, you can imagine them tearing their beards and tearing and throwing dust up in the air, you know, and just acting out in the way they acted out. And he said of these, these prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. 
note, this is very important here. The Lord Jesus is saying at judgment, the wicked will be held accountable for all the righteous blood shed on earth. As a wicked person, as, a, as someone who rejects God, rejects Christ, that person, even though perhaps they never physically slayed anybody, they may have murdered people in their hearts and minds, I, I, I have no doubt, but they will be held responsible for this. This is what's told these men. These were mortal men living in the first century at the time when Jesus walked on the earth and he's telling them they're responsible for a murder that happened right after creation. And they're responsible for everything up until the murder of one of the last writing prophets of the Old Testament before the Lord God closed the canon of Scripture for that period of time before it was opened for the new, in the New Testament. Everybody that was righteous, everybody that was of the people of God that was slain, the blood, their blood will weigh upon the wicked. This is this, what the Lord uses here is called a, a merism. It's a literary device for the, the total thing. It's like when you say from head to toe or from soup to nuts. It's like, <laughs> you guys are responsible from soup to nuts for every decent person that tried to serve God that was killed. John's gospel tells us further what the Lord has to say to the wicked. In John eight forty four, he says, you are of your father the devil. You are of your father. You are the seed. You are the seed of the serpent. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. So the seed of the serpent, the children of the devil, are united with Satan in motivation, purpose, and desire. They are co-conspirators with the very first murderer, the father of murderers, Satan, who incited Cain, to commit the first murder. And so they are joined in responsibility for Satan's evil deeds. That is what the Lord was telling this group of men, the Pharisees and the scribes. Do you realize what you have done? Do you realize who you are aligned with? Perhaps you do. And it's going to go very badly for you. Well, you know what? That hasn't changed to our time. It's the same the same premise, the same principle is at play in our day and age. And brothers and sisters, we are not bloodthirsty people. We desire all to turn from evil and to follow after the Lord Jesus. As a police officer, I got to the point where I could not stand anymore to, to see murdered victims that were bad guys laying dead on the street standing over them at 3 o'clock in the morning while the steam rises off this body that is slowly cooling, thinking, Satan has won, and this just isn't right. Satan should not win, ever. But the Lord has decreed certain things that are beyond our knowing and beyond our power, and his will will be done. But we've been given a task to be examples that are different, to testify to something different, to give witness to the love and the sovereignty of our Lord and perhaps change 
if the Lord wills to use us, change a person. Just one person. Perhaps. So the seed of the Satan of Satan is enraged when God's people proclaim certain things. We proclaim and we aren't the first to do it. We proclaim that babies should not be murdered. And it enrages them. Well, brothers and sisters, this was proclaimed so early in the church, right after the time of our Lord's ascension, maybe as early as 50 AD. You know, that's less than two decades after our Lord ascended. There was this book written, it was called The Teaching of the Twelve, in Greek, the Didache. And this is what the Didache has to say about abortion. And notice the terms the Didache uses here for abortion. It's not sterile. It's not like the group of cells, the fetus that is carried in the birthing person's womb. No, it says abortion is murder. It is the slaying of a child. This life that the mother carries the apostles recognized, because they were taught directly by the Lord Jesus, that this is a living human being. This is a child. And to do anything that causes this life to end is murder. That's the Greek term they use, murder. Or it's slaying of the child. It is not a medical procedure. It is not health care. It is a murder. Abhorrent. Now, why would they bother with that? Because abortion was an issue then. It was an issue in the Roman world. It was an issue in the Egyptian world at the time of the Exodus. Evil is nothing new. But now, we've gone on, right? We proclaim marriage is decreed by God to be between one man and woman. And we are met with rage. Then we proclaim God has formed us, either as male or female. And that's inalterable. And we are met with rage. Now we declare that the bodies of children are not to be mutilated medically in an attempt to respond to a transitory, perhaps psychological aberration. And we are met with even more rage in response to these basic laws of God. I mean, when we talk about the, you know, man, woman, man, woman marrying... Our bodies, our children, that's basic stuff. That's basic human life, right? But now, no, these things are to be wiped out. And not only that, this rage has caused these things to be codified in law. These sins, these evils are made part of the law of our land. I'm sorry, but I just could, I I feel like my head's going to explode when I think about these things. What what, what do we make of governments that commit themselves to carrying out such evils with with the full draconian might of modern law? But you don't want to go up against the government. I mean, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt financially. It's going to hurt when you're in a little tiny room for a long, long time. They can do things to you. You know, when the abortion protests really fired up in the 80s. I was, a, I was a motorcycle officer, and we were used like as a, a quick response unit, and there was abortion protests at these abortion clinics. And police chiefs and, and, and county sheriffs at that time, um, and many of, many of whom 
I was privileged to interact with over my career. And many of these were decent, honorable men. They were not politicians at the time. They stood for what they thought was right. They had a moral precept. Many of them were, were believers. They were Christians. And by and far, law enforcement was very supportive of the abortion protesters at the time because this was just made sense, right? I mean, no, you shouldn't kill babies. This is just, there's just, this is just wrong. And police chiefs and sheriffs were saying laws were passed. Okay, reproductive rights. You know, if anyone blocks the, the, or gets near the entrance to an abortion clinic and makes, someone, makes a woman change her mind, then they are infringing upon the, the reproductive rights. That's wrong. It's against the law. The chiefs and the sheriffs were saying, pass whatever law you want. We're just not going to enforce that. We're not going to do it. We're not going to arrest these law-abiding citizens who want to protest. Just like you didn't want us arresting people protesting the war a couple decades ago, we're not going to arrest these people expressing their freedom of speech. And the legislature in California said, oh yeah, <laughs> watch this, we passed another law. Mr. Police Chief, Mr. County Sheriff, you are now responsible to the tune of $1,000 a day. That must come out of your own pocket if these zealots these reactionaries, these, these intolerant people who are protesting, if they're not hauled off to jail. That's the full draconian might of our government set against Christian principles. And what's interesting is each step in this downgrade, this downgrade of sin, has been carried out with full-throated cries for compassion and tolerance by the ungodly. Have you, have you noticed that? That's, that's the ploy. And each step that's taken is like, this is it. This is all we need. This is the last. This is, you know, we just want respect here in this issue. And this, this, this promise that we yield to their latest demand and nothing further will be asked. Well, if you look in history, this is the ploy of the devilish tyrant throughout history. Just give me this. This is, this is all I want. When the tyrant's intention all along is, I alone will be your God, obey me or die. That's what's in view. And, but, there's, but there's just one God, right? We know that, triune and being, who's given all people a moral law written on our conscience and, and long ago on, on tablets of stone, right? And each and every person is responsible to this law. And each of us elected into God's family is brought into covenant with God. No law of man may violate the law of God, nor can it supersede God's covenant made with his people. The covenant is, is uh, some of them are, are universal for everyone. Many of them are just for God's people. And proper human government was brought into existence by God because of sin so that those who desire to do good will be protected and those who do evil will be punished. So then, and I hope you can follow my reasoning here because it's the only way it makes sense, is then government that does otherwise than this is wicked and in rebellion against God. Point number three, this is the resolution to what I just said, which is almost like, this is like, that could be like a judge's mic drop, right? Pastor Ken could say that, walk off the step and you'd be, uh, stage and you'd be like, 
Wait, 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 what, what? You can't leave us with that. There's got to be, you know, give us some good news. Yes, very good news. Point number three, God turns the wicked against themselves. God turns the wicked against themselves. The schemes of Satan and his seed turn out to be the means of their undoing. When the Lord God made the covenant with Abraham, he told them that he promised that his descendants, Abraham's seed, would be given a land, but that they would be in slavery for 400 years. But their slave masters would bring destruction down upon themselves. It would be their doing. And that during that time, the land which God promised to Abraham for his seed is inhabited by these other people. But during this, this time, their, the, their iniquity of these, the iniquity of the Amorites is what, is, what it's called in Genesis, um, will come to, to, to fruition. They'll become full. So they're, they're going to act so wickedly that God will have them driven out of the land or exterminated in the laws of conquest. Their wickedness is to such a high degree that God will declare holy war or harim, devote them to destruction, all living things in their fortified cities, man, woman, child, and beast will be killed. Then Abraham's promise comes to pass. And in this covenant promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15 is where that comes from, we find a biblical pattern there. And, and that's what I, I want to look at for a few moments here. In this biblical pattern that we first see in the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord protects the seed of the women, of the woman, excuse me. Then they, by the nature of their identity as the seed of the women, God's people, they instigate the seed of the serpent to greater wickedness, which brings God's deserved judgment upon the wicked. Another example is we move through the canon of scriptures in the, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is given a prophecy, right? There's these dreams, dreams of statues of different metal composition and so on and so forth. And he tells, he interprets this dream. It's a prophecy. There's four kings to come from one great Greek king. Now this great Greek king obviously is Alexander the Great. Well interestingly in history when Alexander dies without a son, without an heir, dies at a fairly young age in his 30s, his kingdom is assumed by four successors they are called. These are his, four of his generals take over the Greek empire. And one of their descendants in the first century B.C., a fellow by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who's a madman. He's one of the seeds of the successors, so a seed of Alexander in a sense, invades Israel and he desecrates the temple, does horrible things, and the Jews have had it. They revolt. There's the Maccabean rebellion against these Greeks. Big time war. And what happens? They reach out, the Jews reach out to Rome. Like, can you help us here? Can you give us some assistance? And, oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll come help you. 
glad, glad to do it. Foreign alliances, got to be careful. So <laughs> the Romans come in, it sets the stage for the Roman occupation, right? And we know that that's going on at the time of our Lord's ministry. Our, my last example is Paul writes of the Jewish enemies of Christ and the church, the Jewish enemies that come about during the Roman occupation who bring wrath down upon themselves by their persecutions. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, he advises the Thessalonians to become imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Jesus, that are in Judea. Look at the Christians in, 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 uh, in Judea, he's saying. For they suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So they're being per- the Christians are being persecuted by Greeks and Jews. Romans, Hellenistic, um, which is, you know, the Greek, Roman, same, same. These persecutors who killed uh, the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering from us speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul declares that the Jews that did not follow Jesus, the Jews that rejected their Messiah in their own lifetime, they had earned God's wrath. Understand, there's some commentators that take this and, 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 and they ponder, well, is, is Paul really anti-Semitic here? He's talking about Jews in a negative way. Can, can that, is that acceptable? He's not talking about Jews as Jews. He's talking about Jews as rejectors of Christ. Jews who knew or should have known that this was their promised Messiah, the Savior who had come, and they turned against him, not only in a way of like, no, nah, I don't believe him, but they wanted him dead. They killed him. They persecuted him. And then they persecuted his followers. So these are, this is the seed of Satan. The seed of the serpent that Paul is talking about. He's not being anti-Semitic. He's being anti-Satan, which is okay. We're allowed to be anti-Satan. The execution of this wrath that he's talking about leads, is left to a future date. Paul is inspired to warn Judea of coming judgment, which is very interesting because Judea has not yet been attacked, as far as we know from dating. No one really thinks that this was written after the Roman armies attacked Jerusalem, that this was written before. So it's like Paul is, getting, is given like a prophecy here, that there is wrath coming, which makes sense. Because this judgment will be part of a two-stage judgment. Judgment against the seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent, is always two-stage. There's an earthly judgment awaiting. And it's but a limited foretaste. It's, it's, it's nothing compared to the eternal judgment that awaits on the ultimate day of wrath. You know, it's going to happen here, and then you're going to appear before the throne of Christ, and you're going to meet eternal judgment. So this tells us, all of this, putting it together, there's a plan and purpose of God for having us in an ungodly world. So when we look around us and we think, oh, it couldn't be any worse. You know, what's going on? You know, we need, we need 
we need to fix this. We need to find a solution. So I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, do not fret. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. All is as the Lord will have it. We are to do what we have been commanded to do all along. We are to be obedient as we've always been. If we were living in a world that was almost perfect, and occasionally, you know, maybe, maybe someone would jaywalk or, or you know, um, or let their dog bark at night, you know, and that's the only sins we dealt with, we would still be obedient in the way we are obedient. We would still do the things we are commanded to do, wouldn't we? We are to live as people of God. We're not impacted by our environment. That does not mean that we become, because the world's really bad, we've got to be even more holy, you know, and just, you know, um, do acts of penance and just, you know, wear, you know, um, cowled monk's robes and stuff like that. No, we are to be the people of God. And God has put us in this place and time because that is his good will. It is through us, through the people of God, that the gospel spreads and the church grows. Through adoption, we are in Christ, the righteous seed of the woman. And we've been transformed by the Lord God from seed of the serpent. Every single one of us was of the serpent's seed at one point. And it is the Lord who changed us, made us into heirs of the kingdom. We're inheritors. We are of the righteous seed now, not of anything that we have done. It's not our doing, it's the Lord's. We are his instruments, so to speak, to be used by him to plant water and care for the seed he has chosen before the ages began. Next week, I wanna, we're going to examine this further, and we're going to talk next week about, okay, we examine being God's people in an ungodly world. Next week, we're going to be more, even more specific, being godly people in an ungodly world. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word and how it just gives us a message of hope, a message of purpose, Father. And let us see that. Let us see this purpose that you have for us, Father. We are not victims. As our brother Paul wrote centuries ago, we are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, Lord. You made us more than conquerors. Let us, let us remember that. Let us meditate on that. Let us never lose sight of that, Father. Let us go forth. And as, as more than conquerors, Father, let us see how this enables us to love those who are, who are unlovable, to pray for those who hate us, to love those who would slay us. Father, I admit I do not understand these things. That is not my natural nature, Father. But your word, your grace, your Holy, the Holy Spirit causes me to thirst for these things and to want them. To want them because it will please you. If we do these things, Father, it is pleasing to you. We are obedient to you and that is our desire. Make that the desire of our hearts. Make that the desire of our minds. Make that the desire of of our lives, Father. Help us to love one another with an unbreakable love like our Lord and Savior Jesus has for us. May we not grow weary of one another. May we not snap at one another. May we not backbite one another, Father. 
These things are hard because we are humans. We are sinful, Father. And at times of reflection, we realize how important each and every one of our brothers and sisters are, even those who in the world's eyes are the lesser. Father, your word tells us that those are the greater. Help us to see that. Help us to understand that. Father, I ask for blessing for the remainder of this day. Fathers, we depart from this place. May your people remain focused on you throughout this, your day. Father, may we honor you. May we glorify you. And Father, may we realize that we are basking in your love. We're basking in your care. And that this world, contrary to what Satan will have us believe, that this world, even though it's fallen in a fallen state and imperfect, is still wonderful. And we give thanks for it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.